Again, it's a privilege to be with you guys this morning. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a unique uh, time that we're in. We're, we're in a series that's entitled Called Out, and we're walking through the New Testament together as a church. And we're looking specifically at some passages, and we will over the course of the next few weeks, we're looking at some passages that speak directly about the church. What brings us unity? What gives us identity? Those types of things. This morning, I believe that it truly will be one of the more important messages or passages that we'll look at as a church this year. Before we get to that, I want to share something with you that is, tends to give me shame, if I'm honest, and maybe you're the same. We've all done it, though. We've sensed this craving to eat more chicken, and we've made our way to the tall red sign with the white outlines up high and the lettering, and with joyous anticipation is just dripping from our lips, or at least we think it's joyful anticipation. Maybe it was a gracious letdown for you, or maybe not. Maybe you realized it when you were on your way. or Maybe it was actually coming into the parking lot and you saw on the sign it says, closed on Sundays. Why should Chick-fil-A be the way that they are? Why should they have Christian values on those days and those moments we hate it the most when we've realized after the fact that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday? But I, I really would like to ask, has anybody ever done that before? Anybody other than me thought that they should go to Chick-fil-A on a certain day? They've shown up. Some of you, you looked down at the ground, you looked around, and then you slowly raised your hand. Uh, it happens to the best of us and also to the worst. I don't, I don't know if that's any consolation to you. But it should come to you as no surprise that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. And because they are, they annually, it's estimated, lose over $1 billion of revenue. Imagine that. 52 days out of 365, that business is closed. And there's tons, literally tons of money on the table that's left there that they do not get. That's a lot of dough. And they don't seem to be budgeting, budging either. They've, been, they've had, held this position from the beginning. And they're not letting go. And so we say, well, why would they be that way? We'll get to that in a minute. In 2019, the Super Bowl was played at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Atlanta. Inside the stadium, which, by the way, typically games are being played on, football games are being played on Sundays, and in this NFL stadium there is a Chick-fil-A, and yet that Chick-fil-A has never been opened on a Sunday. Even when the Super Bowl is there, they didn't open. So fans show up, they're hoping to, to catch a, an awesome game and also to grab an iconic sandwich, and to their dismay and discouragement, they are not served a delicious deep-fried chicken sandwich with a pickle on it, but instead they're just given something, french fries with everything on it. That's somebody rented the Chick-fil-A store, Chick-fil-A wasn't running it. They weren't waffle fries. They didn't shift their dogma to pull in a little bit of dough. They held to their standard, we will not be open on Sundays. Theories abound as to why Chick-fil-A would not be open on Sundays, what they call the Lord's Day. Maybe it's happier employees. If you work at Chick-fil-A, you're guaranteed to get one day off a week, and so maybe that's why they do it, some would say. Uh, others think that it has to do uh, with supply and demand. If one day out of the week you can't get the one thing you want, it just makes it a little bit more scarce. Maybe that's why they do it. People have accused them of, of doing it that way. Maybe they're just trying to be respectable 
They're trying to be old-fashioned, and that wins them some applause and also some scowls. Maybe that's what it is. Either way, if we just let them speak for uh, their own reasoning, that might be the most helpful. If you look at, at Chick-fil-A's, and this, by the way, this is not an advertisement. They are giving me some sandwiches, but not many. Uh, so this technically isn't. I'm just kidding. There's no sandwiches being given to me or, or fries or anything else for that matter. But if you look on their website, it says the corporate purpose. There's a dash there, and it says to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Let me read that again. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. This morning is, uh, you may be disappointed, there's no Chick-fil-A here. Maybe you can smell it in the air. It's not here. It's also not going to be a sermon about uh, how fantastic this business model is or how good the, the fries are or anything like that. Maybe that doesn't even speak to you. I don't, I don't know if you can be a Christian this morning and not love Chick-fil-A, but that's another sermon. But there's little to do this morning actually with this text in 1 Corinthians 10 and Chick-fil-A, except for this. I think it's astounding that they would say that. To glor- this is the reason why they exist as a business, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to them. They've made a decision that in whatever they do, they're going to do it to the glory of God. And so whether you agree with them, whether you like that or not, I, I think that that's pretty amazing. And I would like to share this with you. That is, that's my life goal as well. And I hope that as a church, as your pastor, I hope that that's also your desire, that your life's goal would be to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that has been entrusted to you. So whether you enjoy salted waffle fries or not, I, I hope that you would take that one thing away from Chick-fil-A. And better yet, why not take it from the Bible? If you have your Bibles, turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll read verses 23, and we'll read all the way into the first verse of chapter 11. And I'll read it out loud. You can follow along. It should be on the screen this morning. The Bible says in verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, again, this is your word. 
We recognize that there's no fancy, thoughtful message that I can bring this morning apart from your word that would truly edify these this body, this group, and these individuals. And so I pray that as we look at your text this morning and as I preach, that you would hide me behind the cross and that your words would be lifted up in spirit, that you would work in our hearts ultimately to bring yourself glory. And we pray that this would take place and we ask them in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let me, let me say this before we jump into the, the body of the text, or the body of the sermon. Every aspect of of every Christian's life creates an opportunity to either glorify or discredit God, to either honor or to dishonor God. This is the main point of the sermon this morning. Think about it. I'll read it again. Every aspect of every Christian's life creates an opportunity to either glorify or discredit God, to either honor or dishonor God. Another way to say that would be every aspect of our lives presents an opportunity for us to either preach a true gospel or to preach a false gospel. A few weeks ago, we looked at the definition of gospel. Gospel means good news. And if we add anything to the good news, any type of legalism, any type of uh, things that would be in addition to the work of Christ, then it, it ceases to be good news and now it is bad news because it leads people in a wrong direction and it is void of hope. So I pray that every aspect of our church corporately and individually as saints of Christ that we would use every single part of our lives to glorify God and to not discredit him. And every ounce, every second that we exist that would preach a true gospel and not a false gospel. Frankly, this morning is a very practical sermon. I'll give you some practical things that we can take right out of Scripture and we can bolt them on and apply them right to our lives with the goal of us glorifying God and bringing honor to Him. But before we get there, we may have to answer this question in the mind of some of, some of you. The question is this, is God truly worthy of our glory, of any glory and honor that we can muster as a people? Is He truly worthy Parent, you're asking yourself that. Is he truly worthy of every aspect of what I do as a parent, of how I lead my children? Neighbor, you're thinking, is, is Jesus, is, is, is he truly worthy of all the honor, all the glory that I can muster as a neighbor and every act that I would, I would commit? Employee, you might say, is, it, is he really worthy? Is it not different? Is it not separate? Do I really need to try to glorify God through my, my career, my place of work or business? You say, I'm not so sure that he is. And this, this truth that he is worthy, it flies in the face of modern parenting tactics and business practices. Missed other things. Theologian John Frame, he, he offers us a, a helpful statement here. He says, creation is an act of God alone. Think about that. It's an act of God alone by which for his own glory, he didn't need to. He desired to, for his own glory, he brings into existence everything in the universe. Things that had no existence prior to his creative word. And he brings them into existence for what purpose? To bring glory to himself. This is the narrative that we're given. This is the God that has been described to us through his word. Psalm 19, if you're taking notes, I'll read it out loud. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens that he created, right? And, and the sky shows or proclaims his handiwork. 
Isaiah 43 says, I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Romans eleven thirty six. this is one of our verses as a church, says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Again, church, this is the God that has been revealed to us in Scripture that everything that has been created, everything is for what? It's for His glory. It's to be expended on His honor. Creation establishes God's ownership of the world and of the human race and and therefore demonstrates that He has the right to receive all honor and glory. And additionally, saints, if you're here this morning, I believe we're here gathered, We are to devote even more honor and even more glory than the universe as we have not just experienced creation, but we have also experienced redemption. So we are doubly required, in a sense, to glorify God. Because of those statements, every decision made by a Christian should be decided as to whether or not it brings glory to God. Everything. It's all-encompassing. Every aspect of the Christian life is an opportunity to either glorify or to discredit God, to either honor him or to dishonor him. So if you're to begin your, your, your new life in this manner, to bring glory to God in every single way, and in every area, no doubt you would regularly be faced with various predicaments. Well, in what way could this be used to glorify God? How can my joy of eating donuts at Krispy Kreme when the flashing sign is on, how can that be used? Can it be used? God, I really want to glorify you. How can this thing that I love, how can it be used to glorify God? Maybe it's your love for coffee or your love for cars. Whatever it is, you may be asking, can that truly bring glory to God? You're in luck this morning. We have answers. Don't you love answers? I do. Maybe you're asking, what should I do with my life? You say, basically, it's a blank check. I owe nobody any time. It's a a clean slate. I can either go to college or not. I can join the military. I can get married or not get married. I could could go serve over here. I could serve over there. I could travel with with everything I own in a backpack and go anywhere. Maybe you're saying, that's me this morning. What should I do? There's answers for you this morning. Practically speaking, how can a young, single person use their life to glorify God in every way? How can somebody toward the end of their life with much experience, gone through so many struggles and trials and victories, how can they use their lives to glorify God? There's answers for us this morning as to whether we should buy this or we should buy that, whether we should wear this or we should wear that. We're going to get some practical help this morning. As we look, we say, God, I want to bring you glory I want to honor you. I want to speak truths about the gospel to those who are watching and they are watching. And so how do I do that? How do I go about doing that? Well, there's three principles that we'll take right out of the text this morning. Three principles, and we'll get through them quickly, I promise. Number one, liberty before legalism. If you're taking notes, I'll give them to you now, and then we'll walk through them. Liberty before legalism. Number two is edification before gratification. Edification before gratification. And number three, you before me. Now, I'm saying you before me, but if you say it, then it's actually the 
the other way around, right? So then it's, you know, me before you, and I recognize that's uh, a bit of a, a struggle for many of us, but you before me, and we'll jump into that and, and unpack it in just a moment. But let's start with uh, liberty before legalism, number one. Look at verse 23, the first four words uh, in English there in verse 23. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. This is a, a common phrase, we believe, because Paul doesn't just reference it here in chapter 10. He references it a few chapters earlier all things are lawful. He says it twice before then, and he says it twice in this passage here. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phrase that no doubt the Corinthians would have known and that Paul knew they knew. Many people believe that Paul had actually taught them. It, it is consistent with Paul's teaching. With, it's consistent with the gospel that all things are lawful. But before you just take that statement that Paul said, and now he's quoted here, and the Corinthians were embracing, before you take it and run with it, I want to give you some, some just clarifiers or qualifiers, I should say, uh, to that statement. Number one, I got three things underneath that. Number one, it's true. It's true. All things are lawful. Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. One of the big issues of their day was whether or not a Christian should eat meat that had been sacrificed and offered in some way to an idol. Pagan worship, sacrificing this creature, Right? And then they're like, hey, instead of just like, hey, that idol doesn't, it's not really a real God. That idol doesn't eat. And so everything we sacrifice to it, it just, just gets wasted. Hey, I know what we could do. We could have a, uh, a pagan fundraiser, all the meat that's going uh, to be sacrificed to the gods and not be eaten. Then we could sell in the meat market and uh, make a little bit of money back, right? This is what the pagan priests are, are thinking. So then the, the early Christians there in, in Corinth, they're thinking, hey, we shouldn't be eating that stuff. Some of them were thinking that, and there was this big battle. Others were like, why? Idols are false gods. They don't even exist. So false worship, this is all phony. It doesn't matter. There's nothing to it. Let's eat it. This is a big issue in those days. Many of the Corinthians were, were quoting Paul's statement and are saying, hey, all things are lawful. Why does it matter? We can eat this. Paul, if Paul was here, he would tell us all things are lawful. I'm just going to eat it anyway. And many were in and the statement obviously is true. I want to help you to understand, though, what does it mean when it says all things? Does it mean all things? I hate this statement. All means all. All doesn't mean all, right? All, if I mean all of you and I point to this group over here, that's all of you. If I say all of you, I mean all of you, right? All doesn't necessarily mean all. It doesn't always go to the, to the highest and greatest, So Paul, when he says all things are lawful, is he truly saying all things? No, he's not. He's not saying all things are. The word lawful means permissible. There in verse 29, Paul uses the word liberty. So lawful, permissible, liberty, all these things are kind of saying the same thing. By the way, liberty or lawfulness, it refers to the space in a Christian's life where the word of God has not directly spoken into. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man, it says, a man has his father's wife. We're not going to go into much detail there. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, a man, this is in the church, a man has his father's wife. Now some, some guy, maybe this, perhaps this guy is saying, hey, all things are lawful. And Paul's like, no, all things are not lawful. All things are lawful except that which is not lawful. And you say, well, what is he saying? There are certain times where the scriptures are so clear. Many times the scriptures are clear. And this is one of those cases. Paul says earlier on in the book that even the pagans know that that's unlawful. Even the pagans know that that's a terrible thing. 
And yet this man is claiming that it's okay. And you're allowing him to meet in the church. This man, openly sinning, you're allowing him to stay. So there's an area here where the word of God has clearly spoken into. And in those areas, we do not have liberty. We have the ability to fulfill and obey those laws, but we do not have liberty to disobey them. There's no new word or revelation that can remove the, the, the commands of God in our lives. We'll never be, as Christians, permitted to steal. It will never be okay. There'll never be a new word from God or a new verse that we'll find and be able to add into Scripture that will change this. And, and we'll be able to say, all things are lawful. Now I can steal. Now I can lie. Now I can commit adultery. I have the liberty. No, you don't. You don't have liberty where the Scriptures have spoken. Well, I feel like, no. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. The Word of God, the Word of God alone governs us. And in those areas, we do not have liberty. We have ability to obey. And in all other areas that are not governed by precept or principle of the Word of God, we have liberty. And that is a wonderful thing. And that's what Paul is saying. When Scripture doesn't tell us, I said directly only, but it's directly or indirectly. When Scripture doesn't inform us in the way that we should go, we have liberty to determine what we should do. We're governed by the Spirit of God in our conscience at that point. I want you to notice something here. This idea of liberty before legalism, helping you to understand. And so we have liberty where Scriptures are not very clear, where they're not clear at all. They don't give us instructions. Paul gives us, a, he gives us a beautiful example of liberty before legalism. I want you to know this about Paul. He's not married. Paul's a single dude. Earlier on, I think it's chapter 7 actually, he, he, he's talking about how, how he can do so much. He's able to do so much for God because he's not married. And he says, because I'm not married, I'm able to serve the Lord all the time. There's nothing wrong with being married. He said, but I, I promise you, I can serve God greater than you can because I don't have to take care of my wife. I can, I can stay at the office and, and prepare more to serve and to go. I, I don't have to worry about my children because I don't have any children. I can travel the world and preach the gospel and start churches. He's like, it's great that God's allowing me to live this life and not be married. He's like, hey, I'm going to just throw this out there for you guys. If you're not married, this is Paul speaking, if you're not married... Some of you guys are getting real nervous. Some of you single folks. He says, if you're not married, why don't you consider not being married? If you don't get married, you will be able to serve the Lord, presumably as I, unfettered in a sense. It's a great thing. And then he goes on. He's saying, this is my experience. I've seen the Lord work in the life of a man or woman who is not married He says it's an amazing thing. But Paul demonstrates his own principle of liberty before legalism. He says, but at the same time, if the Lord is leading you to be married, or if you desire to be married, there's no law against it. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So there's no law commanding Christians to be married or to not be married. So Paul is saying, do whatever you wish to do. Personally, I have found it most helpful to be, to be unmarried, but you do whatever the Lord calls you to do, whatever you feel is right for you. That is an example of liberty. And Paul has the opportunity to, to push legalism onto the Christians. Hey, you're single, you shouldn't be married. Hey, you're not living like me, you should be living like me. And instead of forcing legalism onto those whom would be listening to him as a teacher, he 
pushes them to celebrate their liberty and to live in that moment. Legalism is saying, if you really love Jesus, if you really were a Christian, then you would fill in the blank. It's been different things throughout, uh, throughout the years. For me personally, if I were to be guilty of legalism, I would say it's best that you eat chicken only from Chick-fil-A, that you drink coffee from Canon Coffee only, that you wear Lem's shoes because they give plenty of room for your feet, uh, for your toes to splay out, and they get a nice, nice flat uh, uh, surface to walk on. And it, that's the best thing uh, that you should be doing. If, that, if I was legalism, I was pushing legalism, I would say those things. I might say something like this. Hey, I do my personal quiet time. I get alone with the Lord and pray and read scripture in the morning. Because I do that, you should as well. Legalism would be me looking down on somebody who does not read the Bible in the morning or read the exact same amount that I would read, less or more. This would be, uh, this would be an example of legalism. And Paul is saying this is not the way to live as a Christian. This isn't the way to lead within the church, within the family of God. In the past, it's been the type of music you listen to in some circles, in some churches. It's been whether women should wear pants or whether they shouldn't, whether men should have hair that touches their ears, whether they should have a man bun. They definitely shouldn't. The Bible speaks clearly to that. No, just kidding. Maybe these things don't sound familiar to you. Maybe that's not been your experience. How about tattoos? How about drinking alcohol or smoking? The Bible doesn't speak to these issues and say that we should or shouldn't do them. And yet the universal church, the Catholic church collected, it's divided over these issues all across the board. What's acceptable, what's not acceptable. In these areas, we as Christians have been given liberty. We've been given liberty. And so, it's true. Legalism over, over, uh, liberty over legalism, it's, it's true. The second point all things are lawful, is that it's personal. In verse 23, if you were to read that in the Greek, Paul says, all things for me are lawful. He's actually speaking personally in an individual sense. So if you were to apply that and to say that, you could. He would, he would encourage you to say all things are lawful. If you were to say that exactly how Paul said it, you'd say all things for me are lawful. He's not speaking generally of the church and collectively. He's speaking specifically and individually. And so you could say that this morning. Not only is it true, but it's personal. You can say that this morning, that all things for you are lawful. Whether or not you want coffee from here or from there, it's your decision. Whether or not you want to do your personal uh, worship time in the morning or in the evening or throughout the day because you're just so holy and you're always in, uh, reading, just walking around reading, whatever, that's your call. Enjoy your personal liberty that you have that's been given to you. From an individual perspective, Paul is saying you can enjoy your Christian liberty. There are many things that do not bind the conscience of Paul that he would enjoy or do personally because it's not forbidden in Scripture. Your liberty, it's a personal matter. Now, you might, some of you are more intelligent than others and you realize that I'm setting you up here. I'm drawing attention to a truth in the text. but I want to, be, I want to warn you that there is a hook present in that. So if you swallow too hard, if you, if you, if you, if you get too excited about uh, it being personal, you might have a problem here in just a minute. But it is true, it's personal, and lastly, this isn't too difficult for you to recognize in the statement that all things are lawful, is that it's often abused. It's often abused. It's not hard for you to imagine how that's possible, right? My kids are like, hey, Dad, is this healthy, right? 
Walking out of candy bar, they got boxes and like tote bags, like hidden stuff under the bed. You open like drawers after, after uh, they've already they've already done uh, trick or treating. And they've got candy hidden everywhere. And one of my daughters will ask me ask me this week, "Is this healthy? Healthy? Is this healthy?" And I say, "Well, n- not really, but it's not poisonous. It's not going to kill you." And they're like, "Oh, great!" So they eat one, but then they abuse that answer, right? Oh, it's not going to kill me. So what do they do? Well, if one's not poisonous, is 10,000 not poisonous, right? So the next thing you know, they've, they've eaten all of their candy in one night and their stomachs are all magically, mysteriously upset and we don't know exactly why they're not feeling well. You see, it can be abused, right? With this one simple truth. We often take things to the extreme. And that's exactly what the church at Corinth was doing. They were abusing this principle that all things are lawful. And so keep those points in mind as we think about liberty and as we move forward through the text. Paul agrees all things are lawful. He even demonstrates that principle, right? I'm married, or I'm not married, and I don't think you should be either. I think it'd be great if you didn't, right? Awkward conversation. But then he's like, hey, if you're going to go for it, go for it. I'm not going to push legalism on you. You have liberty in Christ. You serve. You glorify God in whatever way you feel is right in a manner of speaking. So it's vital for a church as we think and operate that we, we, we not participate in legalism, but that we live and breathe and move in liberty. Liberty, recognizing there's nothing that we can add to what Christ has already done for us. So this is the point where it's very dangerous for us as we consider liberty over legalism. Because when we add things to other folks, you have to look like this. You have to dress like this. You have to, you have to pray in this particular manner. We speak in areas where Scripture has not spoken. It actually lies about the gospel. It says that there's more to the gospel than what somebody has already previously realized or that Paul has preached to be extremely careful here that we're not adding to the gospel. I want to talk to you about the gospel just for a moment. If you're here this morning and, and you're to the point where you want freedom from guilt of the past and hope for a future filled with, maybe a, a future filled with peace with God, here's what's required for that. That you place your faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. And he died for those who were living in sin, but those who repent and trust the work of Christ on the cross and the fact that he was resurrected, you will receive forgiveness from sins. You'll receive a righteousness, righteousness of Christ, a a unification with God the Father. This is what's necessary, placing faith in Jesus by faith alone. There's nothing we can add to that. And so when we begin to add, you have to look this way, you have to do these things. We're speaking in an area where the Bible doesn't speak. We're adding to the gospel. And we're even lying about God. We're lying about the gospel. So when you operate in in disregard to this principle of liberty over legalism, we're lying. Consider in your own life, how, how are you in relationship to this principle? Just a few weeks ago, we looked at each of us personally had this tendency to add to the gospel. Back in the day, it was circumcision, right? That's not something that we're going we're gonna to flock to and try to push on everybody, right? That's a little bit weird. We're not, that's not where we're at today. That doesn't mean we're not adding to the gospel. So again, I would invite you just to consider your own life. In what ways are you adding to the gospel? Where, where are you tempted to do that? Fathers, 
Consider how are you, in what way are you parenting your children or leading your spouse? Lead them down a path that's unhealthy or unhelpful. I think that's such a great question for us to really ponder and consider this morning. As we transition, though, on into the next principle, I want to just give a, another warning. We've got lots of warnings this morning. Many of us are, are guilty of clinging to this principle of liberty over legalism in our attempts to glorify God, and we boldly declare something like, give me liberty or give me death, right? We grab our giant sword and we paint our faces and we say, freedom, right? Like that's, that's what we're going after. And we want these things. God is, for freedom we've been set free, and so now we're going to live in our freedom to do whatever the Bible doesn't tell us we can't do. While all things are lawful, there's... That's not the only principle that guides us as Christians. Another principle that we, I mentioned a moment ago is edification before gratification. Edification before gratification. Look at verse 23. It says, there's another qualifier there, another principle. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So you see that there's, a, there's an issue here, right? All things are lawful. Uh, they're, all, they're, they're well they're good, right? You're, you're, you're able to do all these, to have liberty in Christ. But not all things are helpful. Not all things are profitable. You, you, we understand that, right? A piece of candy, you can have a piece of candy, but that's not necessarily helpful, right? Uh, Netflix, right? It's like, well, we love Netflix. Is it lawful for a Christian to watch Netflix? Of course it is. You might, the question could be asked, though, is... Is Netflix truly helpful? Some of you guys are like, you're, you're touching the golden calf. Please back away from, from Netflix. I recognize that. I love, I love me some Netflix. But the question, you see though, not everything that is lawful is also helpful. Not everything that is lawful or permitted for a Christian builds up. So it's legal for you to, to, to drive, it's, I'm sorry, it's illegal for you to drive down the duel Roll the window down and just throw money out the window. It's, legal for, it's illegal for you to do that. Okay? It's against the law. That's unlawful. What, what is lawful, though, is for you to go eat a sandwich at, uh, at um, Wendy's and get a chicken sandwich. That is lawful. But it's just like throwing your money out the window. It's a waste, right? And so you see that just because something is permitted doesn't mean that it's good. It doesn't mean that it's built up, right? If you, if you want to do something that's lawful and that builds up, go eat a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Don't go to these other inferior restaurants. So Paul's saying, hey, not all things that are lawful are good. Not all things that are lawful build up. And he offers a, a bit of a personal sense here when he says, not all things are helpful. He's saying, for me, not all things are helpful, and then he goes on to say, in the next one he says, but not all, thing, or all things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then he begins to broaden it out a little bit. He's beginning to speak in language that, is, that would make us think of the church, building up the church. It, literally, that word means to build a house, to build up, to edify. It's, where we, uh, it's edifice, right? Edification. This is what it means in the church. So it begins to call our, our mind to that, hey, think of, uh, of building up. Think of what's good for you. Think of what's good for the church. And, and here's the point that he's trying to make. And there are things in your life that you may desire that the Bible has not explicitly said that we should not do or that we should do and that we have liberty in. And that things that bring us pleasure and gratification, the, the, they exist. 
They're not all necessarily good for us as Christians, and they're not all good for those who are around us and who we lead and who we influence. I mentioned Netflix a moment ago, but I think hammers are similar. We could talk about hammers in the same way. Hammers, there's nothing wrong with Netflix. Truthfully, there's nothing wrong with a, a, a chicken sandwich from an inferior restaurant as well. If you think about cupcakes, cupcakes, are, they're, they're lawful, right? Right? They're lawful. Too many of them, right? It doesn't build up. It builds out. <laughs> and this is what he's warning us, right? So many of us, though, when we think about, like, what do we really need to live our lives? If we're trying to glorify God, do we really need to, to lean into things that edify? Isn't it, just, isn't it good enough if I just stay within the bounds of, of my Christian liberty? And Paul's like, no, there's another qualifier. There's another, there's another circle that you want to really get in the middle of. You want to get into this liberty, and you also want to get in there where it edifies. And where those two overlap, that's where you want to hang out. And so many of us, are we're, we, we, we want to get that sword, right? We want to say, no, no, liberty. I can do whatever I want to do. I have freedom. And Paul's pulling us back. He's saying, stop asking the question, what can I do? Myself, what, what, can I, what can I get away with and start asking the question, what brings glory to God? What, what builds up? What edifies? We won't spend tons of time in an application here, but I, I want to just draw your attention to this. In what ways are you using your Christian liberty to edify the church? So many times we think, how can we use Christian liberty to, to, bring, our, to bring pleasure and joy to ourselves? And I want to turn that just a moment. I think Paul's doing that for us. In what ways can you use your Christian liberty, your freedom in Christ, to build the church up, and to declare the gospel, and to explicitly glorify and honor God. In what ways can you do that? There's a danger as we consider this edification over gratification. There's a danger in legalism. Uh, there's a danger now with this principle as well that we slip back into legalism, right? That now we become legalistic in the fact that if we don't do anything, we don't eat candy, we don't eat cupcakes, we do every single thing, has to ver- just do the best have the most power and weight in this area of edification. Paul's saying that's, that's not healthy either. He would warn us against that as well. That we not become legalistic about edification. Many of us, I know I've been guilty of that as well. You come home and you're thinking, man, we're, we're so, there's so much gratification and not enough, not enough edification. All the Kindles going in the trash, we're canceling all of our services. We're going to just... Sit around and praise God all day, right? That's a, a bit of an overreaction. Maybe some of you are like, no, that's good. Uh, no, that would be great. I, I would encourage you to consider, are, are, you, are you leaning back into this legalism? There's got to be a balance here. We enjoy our liberty in Christ. We don't become legalistic, but we also work toward edification and not gratification. So there's another lie that can be taught and. And, and, and told through the way that we live our lives. If we lean into gratification over edification, and it's this. That God cares more about our joy and our pleasure than anything else. And even more than that, that he's, not, he's not saved us for a purpose, and yet he has. It says that, that God has justified us, yes, but he is not sanctifying us. He's not setting us apart, and yet he is. So when we lean as Christians into gratification and not edification, we cease to grow. And those around us cease as well. So Paul is calling our attention, the Spirit of God this morning is calling our attention back to 
edification concerning where liberty and edification overlap. And there, in that space, we will and can glorify God, and we have. So Paul's been speaking in a personal and an individual sense for most of this. But then he begins to expand it even more here in, 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 in principle number three. Principle number three is you before me. Principle number three, you before me. In verse 24 he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor's. One of the mantras of Americans is that each of us has the right to seek our own happiness. We have the right, inalienable. You can't take that from us, that we have a right to assert, to seek out and embrace our own quest for fulfillment. We have that liberty. But in verse 24, that footing is removed for the Christian. We're not to seek our own good, but we're to seek the good of our neighbor. So there's another circle that's drawn over top of liberty and edification. It's the, not just edification of yourself and the building up and the good of yourself, but it's also the good of those within the church and those around you. This is the context. This is what he's speaking here. Remember, in verse 27, he says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who's informed you. Paul says, if you go to an unbeliever's house and he serves meat, then don't ask, just just eat. Eat whatever's served. Why? Because you don't, there's no point in offending them. There's no reason there. Idols don't exist. They're fake. They're false. What does it matter, Paul is saying? But then the hypothetical, it gets a little more complicated because in that picture, there's actually a Christian now. It's not just an unbeliever and, 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 and you. It's, there's another Christian there, and this guy's awkward. Let me tell you about this guy. To say that you're pleased because you've been invited over to the to town butcher's house is, is, is an understatement for sure. You know that typically this butcher, he is involved with some shady stuff, and it's, it's, it's pagan. Idol, it's associated with this, and so it's, it's in a sense, by some uh, standards, it's unclean. But you know that the steak that you're going to get served that night at that invitation is going to be exquisite. You know, the wine is going to be so good. It's not a Baptist that's been invited. This is, this is you in a fantasy in a different world, right? But you're also excited about maybe that night having a, a, a meaningful conversation about the gospel. And so steak, a good wine, and a conversation about the gospel. You're so excited, and you get all ready, and you drive to this, this guy's house, and as you pull into the driveway, you, you recognize that he's invited somebody else to dinner as well. And this guy is a young Christian. This guy was just saved out of paganism. It's very, very much, again, it feels very strongly that Christians should not eat meat that's been offered to idols. So by Paul's instructions, at first, if he's invited to this guy's house and he, it's maybe a little bit unkosher to eat that, he said, just eat it. Right? Have, have good conversation. Share the gospel with this guy. And he says, but what if, what if this Christian, another Christian shows up that's against it and thinks it's sinful and terrible? What do you do? Do you duke it out? Do you have, a, do you have like a Facebook battle right there in the presence? You're texting each other as you're taking pictures and tweeting what, what's taking place and everybody's arguing back and forth. No, don't do that, Paul says. Just acquiesce. Don't. That's your liberty. You have the liberty to not eat the meat that's been served. What's happened here is he's ceded his own liberty. This Paul is saying that we should cede our own liberty to the weaker Christian, to the weaker brother who thinks that it is unhelpful and even sinful. 
So the principle stated here, it doesn't mean that one should never seek his own good. He's not saying that you should never seek your own good or never do anything that you enjoy. Of course not. That's, that's, that's legalism. It's dangerous as well. That's, that's not recognizing your own Christian liberty. But when your own good conflicts with the good of others, the latter should be, take precedence over the former. It shows that the liberty of the Christian in 1027, it's got to be governed by consideration for others. So we have liberty. We should not fall into legalism. We also shouldn't fall into just self-gratification, whatever brings you pleasure, whatever brings you joy, but instead we should look to what builds us up and what builds us, uh, those around us. More specifically, we should put others before ourselves. We have, the, we have the right and the privilege. We have liberty and we have the ability to allow our own desires to be second class to those who are around us. Maybe you holler back this morning, but liberty, we have liberty. We also must edify, and not just individually, but corporately. We have to consider our weak brother or sister. There's danger in that as well. Embracing our liberty or deforming to our other brothers and sisters in Christ, chapter 8 speaks to that. It speaks more in depth in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 of exactly this very situation of, of being at dinner and all these issues coming up. It helps us to understand that in this book that there's two types of Christians. This morning there's two types of Christians. And, and maybe you're already kind of sizing each other out. Well, which type am I? Am I the weaker or am I the stronger? Am I the mature or am I the immature? Am I the knowledgeable or the ignorant? They exist. There's a scale, so to speak, of maturity and knowledge. Paul is saying to you this morning, if, if you're the more mature Christian, then when you can, give in for the good of the younger Christian, for the immature Christian or the one that knows less. If they're leaning more into legalism, don't, don't fall out into liberty and shove it in their faces and create some type of an argument, but lovingly, See to their point as much as is possible and maybe a conversation later. There's danger in allowing the weaker and younger and less knowledgeable Christians to rule the roost, so to speak, and to win every argument in battle. But what is the motivation for why you would win an argument? What is the motivation for why you would lean into liberty? Is it really because you care for their soul? Is it because you desire liberty? Why would you fight for what makes you happy and for your position over theirs is it really because you want them to come to a, a level of maturity that you experience and enjoy or is it because you want to prove that you're right first corinthians also warns us that knowledge puffs up but that love builds up what a great application for us this morning as we consider you before me I may have a greater understanding in certain areas than you in this particular area or, or you over me. We have to be careful that knowledge puffs up. It makes us prideful. And what does love do? Love builds up. And so where we can, we check our hearts. And where we can, we, we allow the weaker brother or sister to have the application of whatever it may be as much as is possible, consistent with the gospel. We give our liberty over. We have the liberty to do that. So like the other principles, when we operate in disregard to this principle, 
we lie again about the gospel and we say that we are the point. We say that we are the point, that life is all about us. When we say, no, it's me before you, we sound like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, as we looked at earlier this year, who took everybody underneath of him and he used all their resources and all of their energy and he expended it on himself. That's not what God has done. That's not what he's demonstrated for us and that's not what he's called us to. One of the greatest ways that we can truly glorify God and raise up Christ in his sacrifice is to have unity with the brothers. Not arguing over being right or being there first or whatever it is that we, we fight about as Christians, but to really allow the Lord to be lifted up as we lower ourselves and put others before us. And this is the point, right? 31. So whether you eat or drink, whether you get married or you don't, whether you go to college or whether you don't, whatever it is, whatever you do, here's the, here's the test. Do it to the glory of God. And don't fall into legalism. Embrace liberty. And don't fall into self-gratification. Embrace edification. And don't serve yourself. Serve others. This is the, this is, we, we spoke of mantras earlier. This is the mantra of Jesus Christ. Paul says in, in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus did nothing out of pride, but everything out of humility. He condescended to mankind. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, What's the greatest commandment? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's the way that he lived his life, right? Loving the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, and mind. As we close, I want to just share this with you. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is so often misquoted. I don't want to be offensive, but it, by many people, including Jews and Muslims, and they use it against Trinitarians, against Christians who believe in a triune God, and they say, look, proof text, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. I've had Muslims and Christians in the spirit of humility and kindness and, and just brotherhood in some sense say, What does it say, Josh? Well, it says the Lord is one. And they look at that as, as if it's some kind of a proof text nugget that God had given Muslims or Jews prior to, to Christianity coming onto the scene in the first century. That's not the case. As a matter of fact, when, in an apologetic sense, when, when you hear somebody bring that up to, de, to defend a, a, uh, or to, to attack against the Trinitarian views that Christians hold, it's actually playing into our favor as Christians because the very same word Genesis chapter, is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This oneness of God is also spoken of Adam and Eve and a oneness that they experienced. And so there's, a, a, there's, a, a, there's more than just one. In that, in, in, that, in that sense. But the point of that passage, I don't bring that up to talk about a, some apologetic or tool that you can use to, to, to defend your own faith and your own life or, or, against, the, the faith, or the, against others, but I bring it up to say this. The point of that passage is not to say that the Lord is one, not three. The point of that passage is to say that God is not divided. God is not divided. He is unified. And that we too, as individuals, 
As we look at God, that our affection for him not be divided, as he is not divided. That our love should be unified. The love of the body, of the the heart, of the soul, and of our strength should be unified as he is unified. A triune God, three in person, yet one God. Our three parts should also be unified, undivided, for and towards God. Asking the question in every level of our being, our our heart, our soul, and our strength, how can we glorify God? He's worthy to be glorified. How can we glorify him? So we ask questions. How does this bring me happiness? How does this bring me fulfillment? So, So often, sadly, those questions govern us, and yet the question that should govern us is how does this glorify God? How does this honor the Lord, and how does this speak the truth about the gospel. And so, Christian, every aspect of Christian life, every single aspect of your life, creates an opportunity to either glorify or discredit God, to either honor or to dishonor God. And I pray over this church that we would be a church that chooses every day to glorify God and to honor Him. Would you pray with me? God, this truly is our prayer this morning. And as I prayed at the beginning of our time together we are unable to fulfill this in and of ourselves and so this morning it's our desire that you be glorified that you be honored that you be raised high and that we speak truths consistently and unified about you and your gospel we can't do that without your power and so we, we lean and look to you this morning we pray that this would be true in every area of our lives our places of worship places of work in our homes, in our neighborhoods, to the ends of the earth, we pray that you be glorified. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.